The Ten Commandments are clearly one of the most well-known scriptures in all of God's Word. Probably comparable would be texts like Psalm 23. The Lord's Prayer would be up there. But the Ten Commandments have a long history in not only the church, but even in certain cultures as reflecting who God is, and how God works, and what God desires. And in one sense, they're simple. They're just these Ten Commandments. Actually, the Hebrew word, when they're first listed, is words. They're ten words, statements, that aren't super long. A couple of them have more than one sentence, but some of them are just five or six words. So in one sense, they're simple enough that rightly so our fourth and fifth graders and their New City Catechism class memorized these. My daughter just finished recently going through these and the curriculum in our church and has tested me regularly at dinner time and gets mad if I do not have the exact scripture memorized. Thank you, Rudy's, for getting me in trouble several times. But also thank you for teaching my daughter the Ten Commandments. For centuries they have been central to what it means to understand who God is, how God works. They're listed in all the major confessions and catechisms going back long before America even existed. And for that reason, it does us good to look at the Ten Commandments specifically. But more than just to look at them, even more than to memorize them, which is, which is good and helpful, to actually see how they're a lens for who God is, how God works through Christ, and what is good and true. Right? So that's the sense of the Ten Commandments. Like if, you, if you really want to know what the Ten Commandments are doing, they're, they're trying to show you who God is, they're trying to point you to Christ, and they're trying to guide you to live a life that is good and beautiful. Now there's a lot of don'ts and a couple do's, but when you think of it in that broader perspective, then you understand the Ten Commandments. That's why we're, we're going to just spend a couple weeks just getting oriented to the Ten Commandments before, obviously, as you can imagine, I take 10 weeks and take you through each of the commandments individually. But again, I'll show you how they give us a lens for the fullness of God, and they direct us to Christ, and they show us what the good life ultimately is. It's a life that is rooted in Christ and honoring to God. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll wrestle briefly with Deuteronomy 4, one of the two texts that talk about the Ten Commandments. And then I'm going to give you three kind of orientation statements that just kind of reflect on what the Ten Commandments are, just to, just to, just to give us context in the full biblical story and the life of the Christian about the Ten Commandments before we enter into them in the weeks to come. But let's pray. Father, guide us as we now heed your word as we try to posture ourselves, even in preparation for weeks to come, to these ten commandments, your holy law that you've given to us. Help us to see the role, their role in our lives, the, the way that they give us a lens to see our creator, the, the way they help us understand the work of our Savior. Help us to see that, Father. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Julie read for us Deuteronomy 4. You would have thought maybe, if you're familiar with the first 
giving of the Ten Commandments that we would have read something from Exodus chapter 20. When, when the nation of Israel was founded in this beginning movement of God's people in the biblical story, the formal ceremony when God was establishing his covenant people, he gave them these Ten Commandments in a, in a pretty, pretty extravagant way. As, as we'll see in a few minutes, these are the only commandments, the only laws of God in all of Scripture that God himself gave. The rest of them he was satisfied to have his prophets and apostles give. But these ten God gave personally. And he actually gave them face to face. Like feel the, feel the weight of that. And, and the, the scene was loaded. There was, there was a mountain and there was God's holiness. And all of God's people were called to gather together to receive these commands. And in Deuteronomy 4, God's people are being given this covenant renewal. They're being reminded of the giving of these Ten Commandments. And listen to these words, these words of reminder. Take care, verse 9 begins, and keep your soul diligently. Notice that language. How often do we keep our soul diligently? Lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. Unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Love how scripture talks about both parents and grandparents. And how he talks about our kids. Again, while we want our kids in corporate worship. Lest make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. The Lord said to me, gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. You see that phrase, fear me, and again, we hear that, and I think in, in English, in our context, we don't think of God often with fear, yet the Bible loves to use that language. But I don't think it's meaning something as kind of extreme as like terror, panic, because this is God the Father. This is God that gave his own son. So the, the, the same God that is meant to be feared is the one that literally is defined as love in 1 John. But it's probably not as loose as mere reverence, as if there isn't some kind of, as if it's mere respect and not something that it realizes that I'm creation and he's creator. Maybe the statement could be best understood as something like this. When the Bible says, learn to fear God, it means things, something like, order your loves properly. Or uh, set right your priorities. Or, or maybe just, don't ever forget the most important things. Now, now when you hear those statements, you're like, oh, that makes sense. I'm not like running from God, like lightning is coming. But I also realize there's important and there's less important. There's serious and then there's, it'd be helpful. There's essential and there's non-essential. And God never wants me to have something besides him being essential and the most important things. He always wants me to prioritize my life. Again, remember verse 9, keep your soul diligently. Take care. And as verse 10 ends, teach this to your children. Notice how often children are mentioned here. How God views our church family, the covenant people of God, as all the generations. 
even as we sit like that today. Verse 11, Deuteronomy 4 goes on, and, and, and you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Again, all that's depicting God's holiness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. Now, this is in the old covenant. What happened in the new covenant, by the way? Literally, the Gospel of John says, and the word became flesh. Like, look at the, look at the beautiful connection between that, that statement there. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. And then you just fast forward to the Gospel of John where the text says, and the word became flesh. So you can even just see, going from Deuteronomy 4 to John 1, the progressive revealing of God throughout Scripture. And he declared to you, verse 13, and he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Notice that, not on paper, on stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time, verse 14, to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Now let me give you three things that orient you to the Ten Commandments in the rest of our time this morning. The first is this. The Ten Commandments reveal the heart of God's law. And in your notes, I even list them for you. It reveals the heart of God's law. That is, the rest of the laws, and there are over 600 laws in the Old Testament alone. The rest of God's laws all spring from and flow out of these laws. In fact, you could even argue that these 10 commandments are kind of the major arteries, and the rest of the laws are capillaries that are connected in some way. It's the main skeletal system that, that every other part of the body of God's law is attached to and supported by. It's the foundational laws that the rest are connected to. Every other commandment in Scripture in some way is connected directly to one of these. But notice how in your notes, I even separated them into two parts. And I often wonder if the two tablets broke them in this way. Why two tablets of stone? Because there's two major points that the Ten Commandments command. The first four command us simply to love God. And the last six command us to love neighbor. In fact, you can even see that divide where there are eight you shall, and then there are two that are, so, so there are basically eight negative and two positive. The last of the first four is the positive. You shall not, not, not regarding God, remember the Sabbath day. Positive. And then the, the last six, the love neighbor, that starts positive, and it begins with the family, the biological family, and it extends to treating all human relationships in a certain way. 
Now, if you think that summary is forcing it in some way, well, let me just remind you, the church has gotten this from Jesus himself. Let, let, let me read you a story from Matthew. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Notice the narrator in Matthew 22 knows that this is a test. So can, I'm going to read it with the tone that maybe this Pharisee testing Jesus might have used. Rather than the inquisitive teacher, I have a question. It would have been, teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? That's like asking which major, major artery is most important for my living. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he adds these words. Listen to this. Again, you're just getting commentary on the Ten Commandments. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So now you can see it. Jesus summarized the law with two commandments. Love God, love neighbor. The Ten Commandments are broken into two clear parts. And even when God wrote them, he put them on two tablets of stone. The first four commandments, you could just simply say, are commandments that direct us to properly living our lives in a vertical way. How do we relate to God, our Creator and our Savior and our Lord? And the last six commandments orient our, orient our lives horizontally. How are we supposed to rightly live among other people, whether it be our own biological parents and our spouses and our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends, even our enemies and other nations and people we dislike or that dislike us. As Jesus explained, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. As I said earlier, every single command is a capillary that's flowing from a main artery, and these are the arteries. And ultimately, these two stone tablets are the heart of God's law. So in that sense, then, the Ten Commandments are a template. They're a pattern for all God's laws, and they reflect God's design for all creation. So even as we're looking through each of the Ten Commandments, you can imagine that they will give us glimpses into who God is and how God made the world. Second of three things I want to tell you this morning as I orient you to the Ten Commandments is this. The Ten Commandments are the foundation of all God's teachings in the Bible and thus the church, meaning they should be the ground upon which we make any declarative prescriptive statement about what God desires. Let me give evidence from this from Scripture, a couple I've already hinted at. The Ten Commandments are given twice in the Bible, unlike every other body of instruction, meaning no other formal law or teaching is given twice in Scripture except the Ten Commandments. It's emphasized. Here's second evidence. The Ten Commandments are given by the Lord directly to the people. Face-to-face -face is the language Deuteronomy 5.4 uses. The rest are given through human prophets and teachers, but only the Ten Commandments did God give himself. 
The Ten Commandments are written by the finger of God on stone. That's the actual language the Bible uses. Think about that for a second. He didn't just kind of do it in a mediated way through a prophet or an apostle. Literally, it says the finger of God wrote it on stone to make clear both their source and their endurance. And and maybe a last evidence that we pick up in Scripture The Ten Commandments are placed inside the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord's dwelling place in the midst of his people in the temple. Unlike the rest of the instruction of God, which is put on a scroll and put beside the Ark, but not in it. Now think about that for a second. Just notice that. It functions as the heart of God's law, as the foundation. It's in the ark. The other laws are right next to it. That's pretty important, sitting inside the sacred room in the temple. But the Ten Commandments are put in the ark themselves. If you want evidence of this from our brothers and sisters in the church, I would just remind you that from the beginning of the church's history, going back at least we have record to the third century, The Ten Commandments have been in confessional statements and catechisms. They've been memorized by people in almost every language and tongue, in every skin color, in every section of God's creation. And we have record of this going back 1,700 years. We have record of this, let alone that God's own people were commanded before Jesus to make these a priority. Or listen to... Martin Luther's statement, listen to his kind of summary of the Ten Commandments or the role of them. He goes, this much is certain. Those who know the Ten Commandments know the entire scriptures and in all affairs and circumstances are able to counsel, help, comfort, judge, and make decisions in both spiritual and temporal matters. So Luther says, not only do the Ten Commandments give us an understanding of all that God would want or desire, but they even give us wisdom for rightly living in this world, making hard decisions, knowing how to act and behave. Well, before we finish our time in God's Word, let me me raise one more. And third point, just orienting us to the Ten Commandments. And I would say this. The Ten Commandments direct Christians to the work of the Son and the goodness of the Father. And I want to explain that, but, but, but I want you to miss this. I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I think it would be unhelpful just from the beginning to think, well, here we go. Here are simple laws or rules. It's, it's thicker than that. Before we explore the Ten Commandments in detail, it's worth seeing how they fit into the full biblical story. Because you might even be asking this question. You might be saying, wait a second, wait a second. Help me understand this. So this is God's law, but did Christ fulfill the law? Like, I'm not under the law anymore. Like, I I read Romans once. Like, I'm not under the law. I'm, I'm saved by grace. And we know that we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. We know that it's Christ who saves us. So is there even any value in the Ten Commandments anymore? 
Or maybe I could answer this question for us. Why did God command obedience to his law if it could never serve to bring us to him? Like, that's, that's just the question. Like, why would God command and put in his word? We just read this. He, he, he used that language. Why would God command that we are teaching this generation after generation? Why would he command us to be obedient to this law if it could never serve to bring us to him? Well, there, I think there's three reasons. One is this, the Ten Commandments are significant because they help us know the holy nature of God. Like that in and of itself, there's, there's two other very good reasons in my opinion, but that alone is a good reason. Like this lets us know who God is. The law reveals how good God is. The law reveals how his holiness is expressed. How about even this? It helps us measure goodness. What does it mean to be good? The world can't define that. What is right and what is true? The world can't define that. 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelievers so that they are unable to see. So picture the Ten Commandments and all of God's law ultimately as spectacles, contacts, lenses, bifocals to help us see what is good and what is true. And the ultimate good, the ultimate true, the one who is love is God himself. So at least then, in, in, in the least, these laws are valuable for the Christian because they allow us to understand who God is and how God made the world. Why Christian or non-Christian, when somebody is murdered, when there is a death, there is brokenness and there is loss. Because you know the difference between good and not good. You were made by a creator. And all of creation has the fingerprints of their creator. And we're kind of looking underneath and finding made in heaven and what that ultimately means. Well, here's a second reason why God commanded obedience to his law, even if it could never serve to bring us to him. Not only does it let us know the holy nature of God, but second, so that we may know the sinful nature of our hearts. Like if God is the ultimate measuring rod of what is good and true, what the commandments do is they not only reveal God's character to us, but they actually show us ours our, ourselves. The Ten Commandments are a mirror into our souls. When my son was little, I was arguably a little gentle, not in a bad way, but I would always let him win in wrestling. I mean, we're talking when he was like four or five, my oldest. Right now, I would not want to wrestle my oldest. But back in those days, I would just let him, I would just, I was always super cautious. I'm catching heads anytime I'm flipping them around. I was just overly gentle. And a guy in my church saw us wrestling once at a men's breakfast, this is in California, and, 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 and saw my five-year-old son's cockiness and said, you know what? He pulled me aside, an older, older man raised kids, he said, it, it's not wrong once in a while to let him know he really isn't that strong. 
So I was kind of thinking about that the next couple weeks and finally realized he, he literally thinks he can beat me. So I remember getting on the floor one afternoon and literally just said, I'm just not going to physically move. I wasn't actually engaging with him at all. I just wasn't going to let him move me. So here comes this cocky, stocky little five-year-old who now could move me, by the way. But he comes up and he's like, and he's grunting and he's, he's like breathing heavy and I'm just not going to move. And he would, I could hear him, talk, he's mumbling to himself, that, did, that worked last time? I mean, I, I got to move. I, I said, what's going on, big guy? I got you. Maybe he's super confident. I got you, dad. I got to move for this. Four or five minutes go, starting to tire out. He couldn't move. I said, do you think? Do you really think you're stronger than I am? And with his kind of brain working, he looks at me and goes, I think so. But he started to doubt a little bit, didn't he? Because he was being tested, not just played with. Again, I never exerted any force. I never slammed him to the ground. He was my boy. But I let him see that he actually could even move my arm if I didn't move it. I couldn't even lift my leg. All of that was me just being a playful dad, playing with a little boy. He needed to see that there was a difference between his father and himself. By the gracious mercy of God, the Ten Commandments not only let us see who the Father is, but they let us see who we are. They let us see who we are. A couple weeks ago, I read 1 Corinthians 13, and I asked the question, what does this text, or who does this text make you think of when you read it? And in my mind, as I, the way I took it, I, I was totally in view, Jesus Christ. A sweet brother in our church talked to me Shortly after, he says, you know what came to my mind? Me. He said, what came to my mind, he goes, I totally see the Jesus thing, and that makes sense. But when I first read it and you said who, I, looked at, I read the words about love is patient, love is kind, etc., etc. He goes, and he realized, I cannot do those things. And part of me is like, that's actually a true answer as well. Not only does the text point to Christ, who alone can fill it, Fulfill it, but it also reminds us that we cannot love that way. Which is the last thing. Why did God command obedience to his law if it could never serve to bring us to him? So that we may know the holy nature of God, number one. So that we may know the sinful nature of our hearts, number two. And number three, so that we may know our need of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, let me, let me tell you something really cool. When you read those Ten Commandments, you shall not have other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself. You shall not take the name. You shall not murder. Is that you, plural or singular? Now, you think it's plural. Because in English, the only way you know the difference is by context. But in numerous other languages, there's actually a different form for a you singular and a you plural. Anybody who struggled through high school Spanish like I did would even remember that. So do you think these yous are plural, speaking to all God's people, or singular? It's singular. Now, in one sense, it could just simply be that every single person, 
that every single person is supposed to obey this. Though again, the context was interesting because God is giving this with his people gathered together. So he gathers all his people and then he speaks to a singular you. And interpreters have wrestled with this for a long time. Who is the you? Am I the you? Are you the you? Is it just a bunch of yous? Well, here's what I wonder. You know who the you is? You know who stood in front of that mountain in due course? Who received that command in his own person and fully obeyed them? That was Jesus. That's why it's a singular you. Because maybe, just maybe, in light of the full biblical story, when God first gave those commands, he knew that you and I would never be the you that would obey them. It would always be Christ who did so in our stead. How beautiful is that? The commands reach out for Christ and they direct us to him. Maybe that's a helpful way to even see the whole biblical story in light of the law. In the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments help us understand God's promise that Christ will fulfill the law on our behalf. But in light of the New Covenant and the New Testament, the Ten Commands help us properly participate in the grace of God and enjoy the fruits of life in Christ. From before Christ, it's a promise. After Christ, it's a participation in the life and the goodness and the truth and the beauty of God and his heart-filled love law. That is, the Ten Commandments are not merely something to obey, but something that Christ fulfilled and invites us to know. So don't think of these just as rules. Think of them as righteousness. Don't think of these just as regulations. Think of these as relationship. Now you have a lens to begin to say, I want to look at these 10 commandments. I want to see how they reveal who God is, how they reveal my sinful heart and how they point me and have me reach for Christ. Well, fittingly, as, as, as we close and we're going to transition just to a, a song as we prepare our hearts for communion, and the song that Greg fittingly chose for this Sunday is Jesus Paid It All. Now, don't just think of that, of the beauty of that in regard to communion and the reality of what we're going to celebrate, but think of that in relation to what we just talked about in the Ten Commandments. Who is the you who fulfilled commandment number one? Who is the you who fulfilled commandment number two? It was always Jesus. Jesus fully obeyed the law, and by faith in Christ, you are invited not only to receive the benefits of that fulfillment, but to know what is good and true and beautiful in your relationship with God. So I'm going to pray, then the worship team will come up, we'll sing that song, and we'll end our service then in communion together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us and for the way that you minister your word and how even in the Old Testament, even in ways that arguably Moses couldn't have fully seen and none of the 
Old Testament people of God could have fully grasped, but why you use the singular you? That all of a sudden, by the time of the New Testament, when the word that could not be seen became flesh, is part of our story, we can see who the you is. Well, help us in this series to be drawn into not just the promise that the Ten Commandments make that point us to Christ, but also to properly participate in the heart of God by means of his law. Father, thank you that your son paid it all. Lead us now as we prepare our hearts for communion to sing this song in a way that springs from our own diligent soul care as your word commanded us today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.